This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. Uh, I'm Sigmund McZiff and boy do we have a Sunday morning extravaganza for you. Our new regular Dr. Perry Partum is uh, in here and uh, she's going to talk to us about uh, a new and controversial treatment for resistant depression, uh, ketamine. So listen up, all you late morning clubbers and sedated thoroughbreds. We're going to find out all we need to know about ketamine. Our regular enfant terrible, SK, uh, will deconstruct reality TV shows. So look out all you My Kitchen Rules followers and uh, I don't even know the names of the other shows. But, the, other uh, one, the one that I really object to, Married at First Sight. Oh, I love that. Oh, I oh, think okay. it's awful. Yeah, yeah. Personal confession here, I'll be talking about that. Oh, excellent, excellent. And we've got a special guest. We've got Dr. Viam Sharma. He's a, he's a doctor, he's a magician, he's a mentalist and a skeptic. And uh, he's going to take a serious uh, scientific look at unscientific treatments. So uh, we're going to have that. We'll have some ketchup. We'll have a little bit of music. And we will have the inimitable panelling skills of Kentus Maximus. What more could you want for your Sunday morning with radiotherapy? So go and get your, your tea, your crumpets, your coffee, whatever it is, and settle back for the next hour as we regale you on the Southern Hemisphere's foremost medical show at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Three, triple, ah. Well... Dr. Perry Partham, lovely to see you. How are you? I'm well. I'm well this very wintry Melbourne morning. It feels Isn't like... Isn't it amazing? <laughs> it's a dramatic change. It's, uh, this reminds me of, uh, of my youth running through the heather in the, in the Scottish Highlands, through the gorse in my uh, tartan kilt. Uh, and SK, yourself? I'm, I'm very well, thanks. I must say, never have I felt so empowered to be a resident of the Southern Hemisphere following your introduction. It's probably true that we are the premier uh, medical chat show on public radio in this slot in the Southern Hemisphere. No question uh, about yeah, it. Absolutely. We have overtaken an Argentinian equivalent um, uh, on, in uh, Buenos Aires public radio. Very small niche listening audience, but uh, we're apparently doing better. That's uh, El Loco on radio, isn't it? El Loco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> El Loco, that's the one. And... Uh, uh, now, uh, anything in the news, guys? So I'm not sure whether this is in the news or not, but I've been listening to the new serial podcast, S-Town. Yeah. It's something that um, has been... Oh, I mean, it's the third uh, iteration in a series of three. The first one was massive and smashed all sorts of um, records for the number of people who listened to it and downloaded it and became obsessed with it on the internet that was outstanding listening yes yeah, yeah it was awesome so i listened to all the rest of the third um series yesterday and it's got quite a psychiatric angle to it so i'd be interested to talk about it down the track maybe in the future when people have had a chance to mm -hmm. to um, digest it for themselves but certainly there's a lot um a lot about what it's like living in Alabama, in small town Alabama, and um, when you're not part of the mainstream necessarily, uh, and the psychological dimensions of that. But also, there's also a couple of other aspects, I think, that are touched pretty closely on psychiatric issues, but I don't want to give too much away, so I don't know how much I can really say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And SK? Other than to largely state in an annoyingly loud voice, go Tigers, uh, no nothing's really grabbed my attention this week. You've been uh, very focused, uh, and you, you and Cantus, um, uh, extremely happy. And Dr. Malice, of course, would be um, uh, quite devastated with the start to the season and uh, um, of, uh, of his beloved Hawks. But uh, um, we're not going to talk about football. We are going to talk about uh, the, uh, the the use of, of ketamine in, uh, in resistant depression. So... Perry Parton, tell us a bit about this. Okay, so this actually has been in the news quite recently because uh, there is a very large-scale trial being run by the Black Dog Institute in Sydney and has started a couple of years ago now, incorporating um, hospitals and institutes around Australia and New Zealand, including here in Melbourne, the Alfred Hospital, and over in Perth, the Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. And uh, the idea is to see uh, whether or not it's possible for us to use this 
medication which has previously been used as a sort of dissociative anaesthetic and a pain management tool in other settings by ED doctors and by pain management specialists to, to treat um, formerly severe treatment-resistant depression. So wait, what do we mean by treatment-resistant depression? Let's, let's clarify okay, let's that first there. of all. Uh, so um, I suppose it just means that depression that has not been effectively treated by other means, which could include psychological therapies or medication treatment through antidepressants. And there's a lot of... Um, there's a really good trial that was done in the UK, the STARD-E trial, where... They tried to augment antidepressants with other therapies like lithium and sometimes thyroxin um, and sometimes uh, medications that are usually used for mood stabilisation or for psychosis. But the fact that there are so many different treatments for severe treatment-resistant depression sort of suggests that we haven't really come up with the answer yet. And that's certainly true in clinical practice. Um, so ketamine has been um, touted as one of the possibilities to answer this particular problem because it seems to really work. Now, I was very sceptical about this. I always am a bit sceptical about new panaceas that arrive on the horizon. Uh, but then in preparation for this show, I had a little bit of a look through the research and it turns out, you know, it, it might work. So, so okay. So the majority of people who have experience with uh, ket, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a horse tranquilizer. It we is. know that, yep. and very effective. So, any horses who are listening are feeling very, very sedated this morning. Yep. But it's used uh, um, illicitly. It is. It's a big party drug, particularly in Southeast Asia, in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. Ever since the nineties, it's been very popular. And part of the evidence that we have for the ill effects in chronic use come from those places. And so, what what do we know about those ill effects? Uh, so I don't want to start with the bad news first, but if you really want me to talk about it, uh, chronic users of ketamine um, develop hemorrhagic cystitis, yeah, um, yeah. quite severe bladder problems. Um, that so hemorrhagic cystitis. So cystitis is an inflammation of the bladder and hemorrhagic is a bleeding. So they will get recurrent bleeding dangerous levels of bleeding from the bladder because the, the vascular supply to the bladder. So, and, and that's an inflammatory condition that's very difficult to treat. Yeah, that's right. Even if you stop using ketamine, it seems like there's some there's some there's just some permanent damage to your bladder. It also can cause some liver problems and chronic users have also developed some cognitive difficulties. So, so that's the bad news. Um, <laughs> but there must be an upside, otherwise there wouldn't be chronic users of it. And I suppose from our perspective as psychiatrists, the upside is that it seems to be really, really effective in treating depression. So most but, people... But, well, but, but the people who are in clubs, yeah. uh, they're not treating depression. They're, they're, uh, they're using it. There must be an upside for them to be using it. There must be an initial hit for them to, uh, to be wanting to use it because it would be well known that there are dangers from use of this drug. Yeah, that's true. And there are dangers acutely as well. I mean, one of the frustrations for me in the widespread use of high-dose ketamine in these emergency situations is that because I work on a medical ward in a hospital, patients often come to me after having been treated with ketamine in their ED and they're hallucinating, they've had all sorts of other psychotic symptoms, they become delirious, they're quite confused. Those symptoms seem to be very transient. But the longer-term problems that I'm talking about, the liver problems and the kidney problems and the cognitive problems there, they seem to be <clears throat> relatively sustained. Okay, so tell us about the, the upside. The upside. The upside is that even people with really quite severe treatment-resistant depression have um, an onset of the cessation of symptoms, sometimes um, only four hours after taking the medication and usually within the first 24 hours and that remission of symptoms lasts anything from a couple of days to maybe over a week and that's the downside is that it's a very short-term remission. Isn't, isn't this in fact how uh, we sort of stumbled across the use of ketamine as an antidepressant? I'm always interested in how drugs begin to be investigated for certain properties and yet the big example is Viagra which was developed as an antihypertensive initially and they noticed as a side effect that people were developing sustained erections. Uh, I believe the uh, origin of our exploring ketamine for depression came from a series of chance observations where people who had attempted suicide and were very ill as a result and were admitted to intensive care units, very depressed, received ketamine infusions as part of their emergency treatment in that setting and when they came out of ICU were no longer depressed. Well, and in fact they were no longer suicidal 
bottle because that's the other thing about ketamine that um, is relatively uh, rare in the medications that we have access to. It seems to be an anti-suicide drug. So we've only got two other medications in psychiatry that really have an anti-suicide um, element and one of them is clozapine and the other one is lithium. And both of them seem to reduce reduce the risk of suicide quite substantially in people who are otherwise very much at high risk of attempting and, and completing suicide. So that's the other big positive because, of course, with the other traditional antidepressants that we've got, um, they there is some evidence that they tend to sort of transiently increase the risk of suicidal thinking, particularly in young people. Mm, so, you, so we have this treatment that mm. has pros and cons. <laughs> how is it administered and how often... Can people have it? Well, so that's the other downside. Mostly it's in administered intravenously. It's got a very high first-pass metabolism so that if you take it orally, you only have about 20% of it available before it's metabolised, um, after it's metabolised by the liver. So um, that's the problem. Uh, they've thought about intranasal um, delivery of, of ketamine, particularly the s enantiomer S-ketamine. In, in fact, that's uh, the basis of the delivery mode in the trial that's mentioned, which I think Janssen Seelag Pharmaceuticals are running, but uh, their trial at the Alfred and at other centres uses intranasal S-ketamine. There's a metered dose inhaler like you might use for your allergy puffers, and people initially receive that, I think, twice a week, and then there's a maintenance phase where they receive it once a week via the intranasal route, which is obviously easier to administer. It doesn't necessarily require... Well, it doesn't require intravenous drip and venous access and things, so potentially safer and potentially less open to abuse, I'd suspect. Yeah, so this is the problem. Actually, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a Melbourne GP who was banned from uh, prescribing ketamine to patients. He had been the medical director of a series of clinics that had popped out around Australia where they had provided people with ketamine in vials and syringes to take home and use as they required. So it's um, the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, was talking about how she's had a lot of informal contact with the people who um, are working um, in this clinic and in others which are similar, which is, uh, you know, people have this huge response, which is transient. Then they have another huge response a few days later, but the response becomes less marked over time and so the doses increase, um, the frequency increases, and so suddenly you're sort of chasing this euphoric Response or this remission from depression, and it can be very quickly spiral into abuse. And so, in the in chronic pain patients who who uh, where ketamine is used not infrequently, um, they have to go into hospital. They have to be inpatients to have ketamine infusions, and they can be in hospital for a number of days. Is that the same in terms of the uh, the treatment for resistant depression? Uh, no, so they'll have a, an infusion, a one-off infusion, or they'll have it um, delivered intranasally, as at the Alfred, um, and that happens twice a week. And then they try and maintain that by so they're actually allowed to go home in in between times. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. They're allowed to go home. They're not allowed to drive for uh, the rest of the day after they receive their ketamine. Uh, by the way, which is probably a, a sensible precaution given the side effects of this drug. And you mentioned psychotic effects and dissociation and potentially hallucinations as well. So uh, I wouldn't like to be on the road with a uh, an active ketamine user. You probably are, though. That's, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Um, so I suppose the thing that it reminded me most of in terms of the other treatments that we have access to when I was reading all this research is actually ECT, which also has this um, very rapid onset of effect uh, and you have to have several treatments over the course of a couple of weeks or several weeks, in fact, for it to have a sustained effect. It might be that down the track, if we um, learn to figure out how to mitigate some of the riskier aspects of ketamine or if we manage to find a version of ketamine that's less dangerous, that we um, might be able to use ketamine as we use ECT to sort of kickstart someone's recovery from depression and then more conventional medications might take over down the track. So get people better with ketamine, much as we get people better with ECT and keep them better with medication. Yeah, that's just my own observation. It's not informed by any research, but it was just what, what, what it made me think of, I suppose, when I was reading all this. All right, so I just want to, often what I do when hearing about a new treatment and somebody who's looked into it is I ask, if you had resistant depression, would you want to give the ketamine a go yourself or a family member of yours? To be quite honest, I would probably try ECT first. I, um, I think ECT is amazingly effective 
and the cognitive side effects I think are mostly transient if you can manage it uh, effectively. I think I think if I had really severe the kind of treatment resistant depression that I see when people can't sleep, can't eat, can't function. And uh, antidepressants in a sufficiently high dose and enough yeah. numbers of them haven't worked. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and yet, you know, they say maybe one in three people who experience depression will have a treatment-resistant form. They don't respond to the first antidepressant that's prescribed, for example, or counselling-based approaches. It's not really practical to give everybody who has treatment-resistant depression ECT because mm. it requires anaesthesia. There's risks associated with that. You require specific rooms and accredited equipment and facilities and staff to do it. So there seems to be a big need for a treatment for resistant depression that is readily accessible across the broader population and ECT will never will never fill that void. I'm interested to see that you didn't mention transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is less controversial perhaps than ECT. It's safer because it doesn't require an anaesthetic and doesn't have those cognitive side effects. Are you, are you not a believer in waving big magnets over people? <laughs> Maybe that's a topic for it's another day. <laughs> no, 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 well. I'll, I'll, I'll explain my silence. So I, I suppose that um, I mean part of the reason I wanted to look into ketamine um, in order for to talk about it today was because I don't know enough, and my prejudices are all that I have to to guide me. Um, and I think I might be in a similar position with TMS, to be honest. So maybe I'll go away, read up, and we can have the TMS conversation maybe mm. in a subsequent um, moment. But I think um, the only other thing that I would really like to say about ketamine um, from the point of view of our perspective as a science show, basically, is that I think it is really exciting because it acts in a different manner from the way that all of the established antidepressants that we have act. Mm. Uh, so all of the ones that we focus on at the moment um, use the serotonin neurotransmitter and pathways to activate the serotonin neurotransmitter release into the central nervous system, whereas it looks like ketamine, just like PCP, another hallucinogen, acts on the glutamate system. Yeah. So it's a totally different mode of action. They're all different receptors. And in fact, um, in unfortunately, in animal models, which I really don't agree with, but just exist anyway, and we may as well take advantage of the research, considering these monkeys and mice have given their lives to benefit science, um, that actually it seems to cause the release of uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor as well. So it actually stimulates the growth and, um, and branching of neurons where people with severe chronic treatment-resistant depression often have um, a diminution in, in certain areas of their brain, like in the limbic system and the hippocampus particularly, uh, and, and it might actually cause those people suffering from severe chronic depression to kind of maybe recover in a sustained way. So I think it's, I think it's really exciting, but I think it's very experimental. Well, a big shout out to all you drowsy horses and early morning clubbers. Uh, keep, uh, keep at it. Uh, you're uh, doing the work of science. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, we've got the pleasure and privilege of Dr. Viam Sharma in the uh, in the studio today. Now, I contacted Viam's been on our show before a few years ago, but I, I read an article that he wrote, uh, a challenging controversial but hard-hitting article in one of the Fairfax papers a few months ago and got in touch with Viam and uh, I was really struck by his, uh, his take on uh, non-scientifically proven therapy. So Viam, welcome to Radiotherapy again. Great to have you back. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. So tell us about well, I mean, we know that you're a GP. You're also, you, you describe yourself or, or the Australian Skeptics Association describes you as a mentalist and a magician. Yeah. So, wow. That is, that is uh, about accurate. Yes, that's right. So uh, I've performed for, for a number of years now as a magician slash mentalist slash whatever you want to uh, uh, call me, I suppose. And uh, combining it with my medical work. Well, I say combining it. They're, they're quite separate, but doing them in tandem, I suppose. And tell us, what does a mentalist do? So uh, that's a very arguable definition in terms of uh, is a mentalist really any different from a magician? And if anything, I'd argue not. Uh, long story short, uh, a mentalist is someone who creates the illusion of impossible uh, things happening using, apparently anyway, the powers of the mind. So being able to, to read people's thoughts or, or influence their choices. But really, uh, all of it is an illusion. But the point is, it's such an incredibly persuasive uh, illusion that, that it sometimes seems a little bit more persuasive than someone pulling a rabbit out of a hat. But it is an illusion. So 
does this influence your way of seeing things that you can you really want to tell the difference between that which is real and that which is not well it certainly has taught me a lot about the human capacity for credulity and how susceptible we are to believe things on bad evidence. Um, for example, I'll do a, a number of effects, tricks, feats, whatever you want to call them, and immediately after I do them, I'll sometimes tell people that you know, that is just a trick. I'll sometimes even go to the extent of actually explaining how it is that I actually did these things, and yet you will always meet this small proportion of the audience who are what I like to call kind of true believers who think, no, 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 that's, that's a false explanation. You really are doing it for real. And, uh, and it, it astounds me every time and it really, uh, it, it makes me, you know, kind of doubt, I guess, a lot of truths we, we, we've held tightly as a society for years. Uh, it also makes me doubt myself sometimes and really keep my own beliefs in check. Does it mean you're very good at getting people to stop smoking in general practice? Uh, I, uh, I have a strong placebo effect. Uh, I'd like to think so. No, but um, look, there are certain uh, parts of uh, things like smoking cessation and, and behaviour change uh, that I guess I implore that are informed by some of the things that I've learnt uh, through experience uh, in, in magic. Yeah. So they do work together to some extent? They, they do. They absolutely do, um, especially when it comes to talking about things like, you know, the placebo effect. I was saying that jokingly a second ago. Uh, but w what it really comes down to a lot of the time is people's expectations that things are going to work and to what extent you can, I guess, adjust that a little bit and augment that effect without being untruthful. Uh, well, yes, insofar as that can happen, absolutely, the two overlap for me, yeah. Now, we've got... Uh, I mean, I, I, want, I do want to go back to that article that you wrote. Please. So... We have available to us in our wonderful world here an array of treatments um, for all manner of conditions and uh, many of those treatments are proven, there's an evidence base to them, but uh, often people choose treatments without an evidence base and uh, I wonder if you could tell us what do we mean by uh, evidence base uh, in terms of, of, of a treatment for a condition? Sure. So. To me, a treatment that's evidence-based, I guess, at this point in time in, in human history is something that has been studied and proven to work through scientific trials or at least a scientific examination of all the information about who it's worked for, who it hasn't worked for, to how much it's worked and, and what's kind of realistic. So we have you know, huge research institutes and scientists and lots of funding to kind of do these things uh, and there are treatments that that may work, there are treatments that may not work. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that treatments that are scientifically proven are things that come in a pill or, uh, or anything like that. Anything could be, uh, even things that seem completely uh, out of left field can be proven uh, to, be, to work. So some scientifically uh, proven treatments may include leeches or, in fact, ketamine, which is what we were discussing moments earlier. Critics of the evidence-based approach, and I should emphasise I'm not one of them, I'm playing devil's advocate, but critics might say that uh, the requirement for large-scale studies to be done to prove the efficacy of an intervention locks up the power within medicine when in pharmaceutical companies because these trials are expensive, they usually need uh, large amounts of funding from a big pharmaceutical company, and a critic might say that a homeopathic remedy. Uh, homeopaths don't have the money or the organisation to be able to demonstrate that their interventions work. How would you respond to that? Look, that's a reasonable way of thinking about it, except the point that all we need to do is just look back at all the studies that have been done in those fields. So absolutely, it's very difficult to disprove uh, so that something you know doesn't work. It's hard to disprove a hard to prove a negative in that way. Uh, but if we actually look at the most popular forms of alternative uh, medicines, things that I would say are scientifically unproven. So the big four being chiropractic treatment, acupuncture, homeopathy, and uh, naturopathy. There's a wealth of evidence about these things uh, about about certain facets that do work. Uh, certain things that, that don't work and we just need to be kind of judicious about things that do and don't work. But it's, it's not like these things haven't been you know, kind of studied. Um, probably the biggest thing that comes to mind would be the NHMRC review that was published in 2015 um, that examined the 17 common complementary alternative medicines that are uh, practised uh, in Australia. 
and showing that there was very little evidence that many of them worked and most of them, uh, there's evidence showing there's very little distinction between them and a sugar pill. So it's not like they, a lot of the most popular things haven't been studied. Hmm. So let's talk briefly about homeopathy because it does get a lot of airtime. I mean, and, and uh, both sides. So there are uh, adherence, powerful adherence to homeopathy, people who would uh, uh, defend uh, its success and, and who will actually say, look, this really works for me and this works for my family members. Um, and uh, and members of the Homeopathy Association are frequently out there in the media up front saying that the trials that are reported are uh, not, uh, don't, don't do them any favors, but there are other trials, smaller trials, uh, uh, in, internal trials within homeopathy associations which demonstrate the efficacy of the treatments. What, 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 uh, what's your take on this? So I guess my take on those things is, I mean, firstly, people have a right to believe really what, whatever they like and it's not really about us being able to, you know, kind of shutting those things down. So if, if they want to bring into uh, the, the arena of the debate trials that do work, that's totally fine. We are allowed to then say, well, why those trials may be faulty or talk about, you know, the thousand trials that, that do show that these things are, don't you know, necessarily work. And so I mean, there is that kind of larger argument of, well, you know, we have a kind of, we have a right to talk about these things, we have a right to pursue these therapies, and that's totally okay as far as I'm concerned. It's, uh, it, it's just that, well, in, in the same way that we can't stop you talking about it, you, know, you shouldn't be able to stop you know, the, the weight of scientific consensus saying that, well, we believe it doesn't work. And you know, what people make of that is what they make. Is there a bit of a crossover here with your own background as a mentalist? Because, you know, one could argue that the, the rise of alternative therapies, and they tend to increase in popularity rather than decrease over time, despite what you've said, uh, is because homeopathic and alternative therapies tend to be delivered with a large dose of empathy slash placebo slash warmth. That's if, right. If you have a half-hour consultation with a homeopath, it's very personalised, you get a personalised, holistic-based treatment, and you feel like you're being taken care of and your views are valued. I think six-minute medicine and the way that that is delivered, we've, we've lost a lot of the empathic approach that goes along with modern medicine as, as a penalty. Do you think that view has any uh, credence? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of we can learn from uh, in that way, I suppose, the, the, the success and the perception of success of things like homeopathy. There are things to learn from the way, the, the compassionate way these things are practiced and, uh, and how that can augment the therapeutic relationship between uh, the, uh, the, the homeopath and, and their patients. And, uh, and absolutely, there are facets of that that perhaps we can strive to apply in medicine as well. I mean, I, as a, as a time-poor GP myself, um, you know, I'm very conscious of, of the fact that you know, if I have more resources for time, uh, then that can allow for a far more kind of solid relationship to be built. And any, you know, let's call them, I guess, you know, placebo effects that any medication could have can absolutely be augmented in that way. And so, so there is a lot we can learn from those therapies in that way too. In uh, psychotherapy, there's long been a debate about how you measure efficacy and what types of psychotherapy work. So uh, if you compare, for example, psychodynamic psychotherapies based on Freudian principles versus uh, what has been developed over the last 40 or 50 years, cognitive behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy does lend itself to being measured and, and anything that can be measured, the you can determine the efficacy of that more easily than something that's less easily measured. And we know, as SK was alluding to, that in psychotherapy, general factors or non-specific factors are extremely important uh, rather than specific factors. So if you try to break things down, so so the, 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 the type of the relationship that is established with the therapist is preeminent in terms of of efficacy being judged by the recipients of the treatment. So is it possible that some of these alternative therapies don't lend themselves as well to being measured as more formal, standard, traditional medical treatments? So I guess in that way we're, we're setting a slightly, not I don't want to say lower bar, but maybe a different bar perhaps for homeopathic treatments in that way, that perhaps a lot of their benefits can't be measured in that very specific way and I guess that's totally fine on, on one level as long as then 
uh, homeopathic medicines uh, don't start to make claims that can be measured in very specific ways. So as long as you're, you're there, I guess, the advertising and the PR for it and the claims of it are happy to stay out of domains that can be measured in very specific ways, well, then you could say, well, that's fine. That's kind of absolutely uh, within the uh, the arena you, you choose to, I guess, to, you choose to, to exist. Then that's kind of totally fine. Um, but it's when there's specific health claims that can be made that can be measured, um, then, then that's when we kind of run into to problems. Um, I guess even within that, I guess, very general, unmeasurable kind of nebulous domain of how these things may you know, improve people's people's health. I mean, there, there still are perhaps, you know, some standards of proof. Like the, the, the concept of health in a general sense isn't infinitely kind of, kind of elastic. At one point... Uh, you know, some things have to be, if, if not even you're know, measured in a, in a you know kind of ticker box, you know, scale of one to ten way, but at least in some way, well, you have to try and demonstrate that efficacy in in, in some way better than it worked for me. Surely. So, so are you coming at this from a, um, a health economy perspective? So, should should our taxes be funding rebates for? forms of treatment that are not scientifically proven. That's correct. So I'm coming at it in, in two ways, and that's one of the most important ways, which is that if we're going to use everyone's you know, tax money to, to fund things that work, well, then ideally, we really, we should have proof that those things work. So that's, as far as I'm concerned, is a complete non-negotiable. Um, but you know, on a second level, the, the, the angle that I'm coming at it from is about people's right to an informed choice. I'm not really too fussed about people choosing to pursue any form of alternative medicine they want. It's really not about slapping the homeopathic vial out of people's hands. It's about you know, slapping a label on the vial saying, by the way, just so you know, no serious scientist considers this to, to be something that works. And then you can do whatever you like. I suppose that's true in broad terms, but I am worried about people who are vulnerable. For example, people who have you know, progressive cancer that's not seemingly being well treated by conventional medicine. I think people who are desperate are vulnerable and, uh, you know, they're not always making an informed decision when they choose these very expensive, sometimes unproven and sometimes toxic treatments. I'm reminded of Helen Garner's amazing book, The Spare Room, if, if anyone's read it, where she has a friend who has cancer and goes to have lots of uh, therapies like vitamin C, um, intravenous injections, uh, you know, uh, various other treatments, chelation treatments. Um, it's it's a really sad story because people aren't really free to choose when they're in that situation. And I wonder if maybe there should be more protections for them than just, you know, a label on the box. That's right. And uh, when I say talk about labels on the box or on the vial, I mean, we're really just talking about the... The, the most you know, kind of innocuous, the least intrusive measures possible. In fact, there probably is so much more that kind of needs to be done. Um, we often don't hear about the horror stories about all the misdiagnoses and the late diagnoses that happen because of these you know, alternate forms of medicine. And there are there's a subgroup of people who are incredibly vulnerable, get very desperate and do will do and try absolutely anything. And they're the ones who are who have the most to lose, and they often do. Um, now, Maxif, can I prod you with a sharp stick at this point. You know, I, I like challenging you occasionally. Nothing uh, I like more than uh, being prodded with a sharp stick. Go ahead. You know, lest our audience get the impression that we're bagging homeopathy and other sort of uh, alternative medical practices, could not the same sort of criticisms that we're levelling at homeopathy, for example, be levelled at psychodynamic psychotherapy equally? Uh, because of the difficulties that you've mentioned around measuring outcomes. Uh, I take Viom's point that psychodynamic psychotherapy, as far as I'm aware, makes no specific therapeutic claims about any specific condition either. It's more a generalised intervention. But that point about uh, taxpayers' dollars subsidising unproven treatments might be equally applicable to some of the things that we do in psychiatry. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that um, we as medical practitioners have uh, an enormous responsibility to uh, allow our treatments to be assessed according to established principles and uh, to determine the efficacy and to, to look at what is in fact evidence-based. I mean, we know with, with, with medications, for example, you cannot get a new psychotropic medication up unless it uh, 
uh, equals or outperforms that which is currently available. And I think that that is, that is reasonable because that, that's the, the taxpayer is subsidizing those forms of treatment. If there is a, a taxpayer funding component to, to any form of treatment, I think that it needs to be open to the, to the best form of scrutiny that, is, uh, that exists. I, I, I don't have any concerns about that at all. I know that there are those who, who, are, um, who are very sensitive to, to this sort of issue, but I think, I think we, we have to subject ourselves to the highest standards that are available. So, so a direct question, you know, for which condition, uh, medically diagnosed or psychiatrically diagnosed condition, would psychodynamic psychotherapy be the preferred treatment? Uh, I'm going to uh, <laughs> take the fifth on that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, as, as a, a psychotherapist... Um, uh, um, and a general psychiatrist, um, I'm very mindful, and my approach has uh, has shifted over the years, and I'm far less orthodox now in terms of the psychotherapy that I provide, and uh, I've been mindful of uh, not providing psychotherapy that uh, is endless with no particular with with an absence of a goal or or uh, an agreed. Endpoint. So, yeah, I'm I'm very careful about these sorts of things, and I think that um, the majority, the vast majority of sensible psychotherapists uh, think the same sort of way. Yeah. yeah. So, Leon, that was uh, a fascinating. Uh, well, an opening, really, an entree into an area that I think we need to explore some more. And we'd love to have you back here uh, to, to, to back. talk some more. So thank you so much for coming in. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to move on to uh, SK, but uh, for all of those who are out there and who are anxious um, about uh, our previous segment, there is evidence supporting uh, a number of those alternative therapies that uh, certainly for certain conditions, they're very effective. So, so don't fret. Now, SK... SK. Reality television, yeah. Just, just to round out the discussion on homeopathy, if any of our listeners are after a more light-hearted critique of the subject, uh, Google a sketch uh, that's on YouTube by Mitchell and Webb and it's entitled Homeopathic Emergency Department. It's very <laughs> funny. I wanted to turn my eye on reality television this morning uh, largely because it raises certain issues for me and inappropriate self-disclosure. I have become addicted over the last three months to Married at First Sight and examining my own choices in this has made me feel very guilty and... Uh, I think it's very unfair given that you are a failed contestant uh, on this show, so... <laughs> <laughs> it, it does raise the question for me and, you know, one of the questions I want to examine this morning is why do people actually volunteer to put themselves in the firing line in such a way if you look at the way in which, you know, a couple of the male participants in Married at First Sight have been pilloried by the broader community for the attitudes they've expressed during the show you know unless you're going into these things completely naive i think you must be aware that uh, sticking your hand up to expose your life and your personal views in the public sphere is a recipe for disaster and it's not going to end well so i want to question the motivation of people for volunteering to go on reality television for a start uh, so uh, addicted to Married at First Sight. My gateway drug, by the way, was uh, Real Housewives of Melbourne. I've, I was <laughs> recently given a boxed set of that and I've been working my way through it. And there is a boxed set of oh, yeah. Real Housewives yeah. of Melbourne. You can get all three seasons, uh, Perry Patton. There are three seasons. If you're interested, I can oh. lend them to you. <laughs> I just began questioning myself, you know, what am I doing watching this? It's, uh, you know, like observing literally the car crash uh, in front of you. You can't avert your eyes from the terrible uh, spectre that's unfolding before you. So reality television's a relatively recent entertainment genre around the world, but it's become pretty much the default mode for, uh, for many TV providers. Uh, if you look at the evolution of MTV, for example, in the 90s, it began purely as a music television statement, uh, station, as the name would suggest, but now it's morphed into what's virtually a 24-hour reality TV-type uh, station. 
If you look at the, the broad genre of reality TV, uh, there's a number of common themes to all of them and there's a number of sub-genres within the broader category of reality television. By and large, reality TV relies on quote-unquote unscripted situations, though I understand that the producers will often set up situations uh, somewhat artificially and then just allow the participants to interact within that uh, set-up forum. They tend to involve reality TV programs and a cast that's otherwise unknown so that they're, they're people from within the broader community who we may not have heard of before, although, of course, celebrities may participate from time to time. And the shows themselves tend to have a number of, uh, of standard tropes, key amongst them the confessional, where a participant talks to camera about an event that happened uh, that we saw in the, the unscripted situation and gives their take on it. And that, uh, in many ways, is a device that doubles as narration for the series. They don't have a narrator necessarily, but the confessional serves that purpose. We also see uh, a standard formula of elimination in certain reality TV formats like MasterChef and Survivor and the concept of immunity from uh, elimination or eviction as well. You can trace the reality TV format back to the 1990s where probably Survivor, the Big Brother series and the Idol series were the forerunners of uh, modern celebrity TV. Uh, so they were the originators, but uh, as the genre has evolved, we've seen a number of subspecies adapt to their environment as well. We've seen reality TV that looks at people's professional activities, so things like the border security, the airport security and the cops television show where the cameras follow a professional around and it's a fly on the wall on their professional life. Uh, there's another subgenre that looks at uh, financial transactions and financial appraisals and the, the show Porn Stars or American Pickers, for example, where they go through auctions of storage containers would be an example of that show. Uh, you know, even that, uh, that Antiques Roadshow on the ABC might be a version of reality TV within that genre. There's types of reality TV where contestants are put in a special living environment and left to interact, and this environment might itself be highly artificial, but the reactions of real people within that situation are, are unscripted, and those shows, of course, include uh, Big Brother and uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and I can see a particular, a particular attraction for watching I'm a Celebrity. Uh, I was guilty of watching that myself, and, you know, in many ways, who wouldn't want to see Steve Price eat a live worm or Shane Warne with spiders crawling over his, over his face? I can see that... The attraction, particularly in controversial celebrities, of putting them in uncomfortable situations and have the audience uh, vicariously enjoy their pain. There's also a variety of court shows. Judge Judy is reality television, I suppose. Investment shows such as Shark Cage. Then there's the survival shows, the renovation shows and the cookery shows, the self-improvement and makeover shows like uh, The Biggest Loser, for example. And some of these have a common thread in that uh, contestants are competing for a prize as such. You know, the winner of MasterChef might get $100,000 and a cookery program and a cookbook out of it. So it's a chance to launch their professional career. But many of the reality shows, and the ones in particular that people that I can see stick their hands up to participate in for no good reason, actually have no prize attached. Mm. People seem to participate simply for the, the joy, if you like it, of, of having the national exposure and being on television. And this particular type of reality show is, is the one that sucks me in. It's the, the documentary-style reality show or, or the docu-soap. You know, although it's uh, real people, they're often uh, reacting to, to artificial situations set up by the producers, often in an alcohol fueled environment to generate conflict and often using participants who have been selected specifically because they represent certain psychological types and are likely to generate conflict with another person on the show. It just occurs to me as you talk about that, that um, it sort of seems to have happened in parallel with the, the shows that we would previously have watched, like, I don't know, Coronation Street or Neighbours or Home and Away, becoming more and more ridiculous with, you know, helicopters crashing into the hospital, people being taken hostage or coming back as their dead twin, that sort of stuff. When what we're really interested in is the kind of psychodrama that you're talking about, psychological drama that you're talking about, where real people face real situations, somewhat artificial real situations and have to overcome them and interact 
Well, the idea behind most soap operas, as you say, is to try and create the illusion of reality. You know, they're using actors to uh, plot through pre-scripted scenarios that are intended to be somewhat reflective of people's real-life experiences. You know, Neighbours is the suburban lifestyle of a, a group of middle-class Australian people, for example. So maybe it's more interesting to depict reality as reality actually is rather than to have a scripted version of reality in a soap opera. So, SK, I wonder, I mean, this seems as though there's been this explosion of reality TV shows. And I wonder how much of that is connected with the nature of our society, um, an increasingly narcissistic Western society, where fame in and of itself is uh, something that people appear to aspire to. Absolutely. It's very much a modern phenomenon, the reality TV show. And indeed, the rise of celebrity is something that has really only taken off in Western society over the last 100 years. Uh, if you're actually to, to do research into the origins of celebrity, you'd see it probably goes back into the 18th century. You know, there were certain well-known people at the time whose views were promulgated widely in society and these people became talking points in their own right. I'm talking, for example, about the French philosophes like Voltaire and Rousseau, whose ideas, you know, sparked the modern enlightenment uh, in many ways. But by and large, celebrity only took off with the rise of mass media. Even if there were local celebrities a couple of hundred years ago, the idea of that person's fame being able to spread beyond their immediate circle was only facilitated by modern inventions such as the printing press initially and more recently, of course, radio and television. I guess modern celebrity, as we currently refer to it, probably harks back to the, the golden age of gossip columns in uh, Parisian and Chicago newspapers about the doings of the social set and so forth. But I do take your point about modern society and the way that we structure modern society, perhaps giving rise to this focus on celebrity. There was a, a book I read by a psychiatrist, Eric Fromm, called The Fear of Freedom, and he talks to some extent about the rise of celebrity and relates it to changes in, in society that occurred with the onset of the Industrial Revolution. And if you look, for example, at the way Western society was structured prior to that time, people were born into a village where their father was the blacksmith, their grandfather was the blacksmith before him, and when you were born into a small insular society like that where you'd very unlikely to travel more than 10 miles outside of your birthplace during your whole lifetime, pretty much your future was preordained. You were born into a predestined situation in society and you didn't really have to worry about the future and what it might hold for you. With industrialisation and with the modern pace of life, children nowadays are born into a society where, I'm told, they can expect to have up to 10 or 20 different careers in their lifetime. And that's unthinkable even to somebody of my generation who's basically had the one career and perhaps three or four different jobs within that. What this creates, firstly, is uncertainty. People are no longer sure of their place in their world and they have to carve it out. They have to make a niche for themselves to get recognised. And this is, has been paralleled by an increased focus on the individual in Western society and a decreased focus on what it means to be part of society. And when you think about it, if we, if we don't uh, any longer perceive ourselves as something that is part of a more meaningful whole, in this case society, we're left with no anchor we're left with the question, who are we and what is our place in this world? And thus, we feel this increasing need to promote ourselves, to reassure ourselves of who we are and the fact that our lives are meaningful. And I'm wondering whether that is the, the dynamic that's driving people to stick their hands up to have their personal lives scrutinised on shows like Married at First Sight and, and the soon-to-be-televised The Last Resort, which is you know, people in failed relationships uh, agreeing to go to a resort island for a period of weeks to try and save their relationship. But, of course, in the process, the car crash of your life that has led you to this point is exposed for a national audience. I cannot see, for reasons other than fame and the lure of celebrity, why people would put themselves in that position. 
So as a society, perhaps, we've got to ask that question, what does the rise of individuality say about us? Can I ask you an individual question as yourself? Why on earth do you watch these things? Do you know? Or is it too primal to really know you just drawn to it? Well, partly I think it's... It's, it's to some extent make make me feel better about my own life, <laughs> you know. And I, and I feel terrible to admit that, but you know, in a, in a show such as Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or the, the the cheap version of Real Housewives of Melbourne, we might think that if we had a lot of money uh, and a lot of properties and a lot of uh, things happening in our lives, that that might make our lives terrific. And to watch uh, Real Housewives of Melbourne and see that despite material advantages these people are really struggling on an interpersonal (laughs) and social level you know it just sort of makes me feel a bit better about where i'm in life you know i think were it for lack of a bentley my life might be better and i can see that you know maybe it actually wouldn't uh can i ask then in that vein so obviously that that's one of the reasons to be watching reality television feel better about yourself and i totally respect that as a, as a plausible reason to, to watch it. Another one might be of course that just that vicarious experience um, you know through fiction of course you know, that's, we, that's why we like to make characters very vivid whereas the whole point of reality television is these characters are so incredibly realistic because they are real. Insofar as that like where does, where does Gogglebox fit in? Like this, this television show about people watching television show that won a Logie for best reality television show like Yes, well, of course, the Logies are voted by viewers and not by people who know anything. But, yes, it's a celebrity turned in on itself, making a show about people watching other people on television. It's quite a bizarre idea. So I found a, a couple of people, friends, I will call them, yes, who are in otherwise completely respectable, who are just hooked on this stuff. I, I do not get it. Well... Uh, it's something that we can discuss uh, some more, but that, that's a fascinating insight, SK, into uh, really what's what's happening. I mean, it's not just reality TV, it's Facebook, it's all of these, um, uh, the immediate uh, revelation of aspects of our lives that, uh, that didn't used to happen. The, uh, so- the rise of narcissism. There was a survey in 2009 which looked at uh, 10-year-olds in the UK and what they wanted to be when they grew up. It was pop star, actor or celebrity. Uh, And that was compared to 25 years ago and it was uh, doctor, accountant and banker. And I guess people chase where the respect is in society and the respect has gone from those professions. I don't think that kids suddenly have become less interested in the function of the spleen to make them want to be a doctor, but respect has shifted in society and that's part of it. Well, uh, we're out of time. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, We're going to pass over to the scientists now. We'll be back next week with more of uh, radiotherapy. And uh, thanks to all of our studio guests here today. Good on you, Kentus. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again... Ooh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.